Hello, 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 and welcome to this January 28th, 2024 edition of the Redheaded Preacher podcast. My name is Richard Lanford. I'm the Redheaded Preacher of St. Peter's United Church of Christ in Skokie, Illinois, and I welcome you to this podcast. This Sunday, the message is called The Loving Thing to Do. It was not one of the easier ones to write because the scriptures uh, were not easy to preach from. I was, especially because I was led to draw on both the gospel and the epistle, on the surface they don't seem to be the same. Uh, They're telling different stories. Um, But I found a link, and that link is love, um, even though that word is not even in the gospel reading. Uh, But I'll explain that. But I'll spend some time with 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. It's about an, it's not an obscure passage, but it's about an obscure subject, which is the, the dilemma that was going on in the Corinthian church about whether or not to eat meat that had been previously uh, from a sacrifice to a false god or an idol. And after the sacrifice, you know, that meat was made available either for purchase or for chowing down with people who had been at the sacrifice, and they'd bring invite friends to come and join the meal from that meat, and maybe the grains and other things that were brought as an offering and sacrifice. And so, who, who, who was this okay to eat this? You have pagan friends. Is it okay to eat this meat, or is it tainted, and thereby will taint you and your spirit um, as a Christian? So, how many? Modern-day <laughs> parallels, can you think of to that? Well, I, 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 I strove to find a few, and uh, I asked people who listen to maybe they can find a few of their own or something in the similar spirit. And Paul poses this in the, uh, in the tension between love and knowledge and uh, takes the side of love, not dismissing the knowledge, but it needs to be kept in its proper place in the Christian community. And then I would go to Mark. So I don't want to tell you the sermon, but at least uh, that's a, a, a preview of where I'm starting and uh, what it's about. And now you have a little bit of a head start in trying to think of possible parallels in our lives today where we do not worry about eating meat that's been sacrificed to an idol and if that is going to ruin our faith. So I haven't opened... Uh, our session together beyond the intro with a prayer, so let me do that, and then we'll proceed into the elements of the service, the scriptures, and then the sermon. Please join me in the spirit if you are able while you're listening. Marvelous God, we give you thanks for this day or night whenever we're listening. We give you thanks for the word which challenges our understandings and which opens our minds to see what was going on in the early church and what their concerns and what some of their issues were. And we seek to find a a theology out of that that will be part of ours that will help us be more loving people. And so move your spirit, we humbly ask, that you will speak to us and teach us for the living of these days. In the name of the Christ, who came and lived and suffered and died and rose again for all of us, we pray. Amen.
Good morning. This Sunday, we hold our annual congregational meeting, one of the foundations of the polity of our United Church of Christ is the belief that God speaks through the church, including at meetings like a congregational meeting. Right now, we have the opportunity to hear God speak from another source, the written word in the scriptures. In preparing to hear God's words to us, please join me in the spirit of prayer. Let us pray. God, your word is more precious than fine gold and sweeter than purest honey. As we turn to the scriptures, send your Holy Spirit to infuse your word with truth and grace so that the good news will shine before our eyes and delight our senses so that we cannot help but respond with wonder, faith, and trust. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. The Old Testament lesson is Psalm 111, a hymn of praise to the Lord of God's great deeds. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright in the congregation, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of honor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has gained renown by his wonderful deeds. The Lord is gracious and merciful. God provides food for those who fear him, and is ever mindful of his covenant. God has shown his people the power of his works, and giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of God's hands are faithful and just. All the Lord's precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. The Lord sent redemption to his people. God has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is God's name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. The Lord's praise endures forever. This ends the reading from Psalm 111. Our epistle lesson is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Although it sounds like an odd thing to be concerned about to you and me, the question if it was okay for a Christian to eat food that had been sacrificed to an idol was a major one for the Corinthian church. Paul actually takes more than one chapter to work out his reply. Here is the beginning. Now, concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists. 
and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge, since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as a food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their failing, falling, I will never eat meat, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. This concludes the epistle reading. The gospel lesson this morning is Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Jesus has been baptized by John and the Holy Spirit, tested by Satan in the desert, and has called at least some of the twelve disciples. Now, right after the passage, where the fishermen are called to follow, Jesus continues his public ministry, which includes an exorcism. They, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching? With authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Here ends the reading of the Gospel lesson and our scriptures for today's service. 
May God add a blessing to our continued thinking about this. The Word of God for the people of God. A whole lot of folks are hyped up about their rights or the rights of others. They're out there and active about whether those rights are being ignored or honored and celebrated or abrogated by those in power. It's not new. We know something about the movements related to the expansion of rights and we're thankful for those who agitated on their behalf. And such movements are not history. The Black Lives Matter, the hashtag Me Too, and regaining the right revoked by overturning Roe v. Wade are all current expressions of the thirst for certain rights. And some of these, if not all, come into play at church too because we believe our faith shapes our values and informs how we deal with the world. So Paul is addressing a gathering of Christians in a big city, and he brings up rights too. He does not deny the rights of the more mature, more knowledgeable believers to, in this case, eat meat that was offered and sacrificed to idols. But he says there are limits to exercising this dietary or spiritual freedom. The language we might use today is, with rights come responsibilities. But in the case of Christians, then and ever since, our rights are sometimes surrendered out of love for others in the household of faith, who are not where we are, who don't, may not have the knowledge we have, the understanding that we have, who have been in the faith a little longer. Responsibility born from love. In, this, in case this helps, though Peter was of help before reading the Corinthians lesson, allow me to recap what was going on in Corinth. Corinth was a major metropolitan city, had a blend of cultures and religions and languages, even though it was, of course, primarily Greek. The sacrificing of animals to to other gods or idols was a common practice, not unlike the sacrifices of Israel made before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Christians who had been around a while, long enough to come to an understanding that yes, there is only one God, knew that all the other idols are not gods. There are spirits, we know Paul believed, and evil spirits exist, but they are not real gods to sacrifice to. Those folks are misled. So leftover meat from a sacrifice made to an idol, available for purchase and consumption, or just having at a gathering afterwards in the temple, because Paul refers to that. Maybe some of those pagans, they had Christian friends and they'd invite them to come and partake. Leftover meat from such a sacrifice is not tainted by any such affiliation with a false god. So the grand apostle wrote, Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists, and that, quote, there is no god but one. Indeed, even though there may be many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, yet for us there is one god. So Christians with such knowledge are at liberty to go ahead and eat such meat. It's just meat. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge, Paul continued, since some have become so accustomed to idols until now 
They still think of the food they eat as offered to an idol, food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. These would be newer believers who have, until their conversions probably, always believed in the reality of these gods, and to an extent may still, though not believing in them, to eat meat so sacrificed would be tainted to them now, immoral to eat, as if it was somehow part of that idol. And if they saw you or me, Paul says, eating it, it would blow their minds. They wouldn't understand why it was okay for us. Was it okay for them then to eat that food? They were so used to their old faith and are now strictly refusing to eat such meat to remain pure and faithful to Christ that to see other disciples going on ahead and eating that food could really mess them up. They did not have the distance from the old beliefs and did not have the deeper knowledge that such idols, they're false. And therefore the meat is just meat. So, Paul said, acting out of your knowledge, if you eat the sacrificed meat where they are and they do too, you can defile their consciences. That's damaging them in their faith. That may be you're putting your knowledge to use, but look what you were doing to a fellow newer believer for whom Christ died. You have this liberty from what you know now, but you must also have love for where they are unknowing, and surrender your liberty for their sake. We heard Peter read, Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you, who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. It does not stop there. He wrote, and you'll remember, he, but when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat so that I may not cause any one of them to fall. End quote. Rights with responsibilities are replaced by rights with love, from which responsibilities can be, you know, lived out. Liberty is not license. Knowledge puffs up, Paul said at the very beginning of the chapter. He was already setting the frame in which he was going to put this picture. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul is careful to use his liberty in a way that builds not destroys. For him, there is a nexus of liberty and love, and it is perhaps the most powerful linkage in human experience, somebody said. Thankfully, you and I don't have such worries today. No one's worried much about idols and eating meat from sacrifices in their temples. Are there other ways today where Christians show their love by refraining from something that's okay for them but to do it would damage another Christian's faith. Are there modern ways that we look out for those whose faith is tender? 
Several years ago, I stopped bringing wine to home communion visits in case that little thimble full of wine might be enough to trigger an addiction that is in recovery. I used to poo-poo that. I'm not going to be that um, prideful to say, oh, I know. That's not going to hurt. It's easier just to bring the grape juice. I started using inclusive language for people and for God in many cases because lots of people find the word mankind now limited to men and there's a sense of being excluded. Always referring, always referring to God as he, him, his can create a problem for persons of faith who had such horrendous fathers or experiences with men that the metaphor becomes an obstacle for them relating to the triune God. And you folks know that I have not gone 100% into inclusive God language, partly, if not largely, because I came of age in that at First Congregational of Minnesota. And I found it over the time that I was there before I went away to seminary. Not only depersonalizing God, God became more distant to me, but as my own father died when I was 13, I felt like and feel like my desire or liberty to refer to God as also my father was being erased by those who may have had more knowledge than love but felt they were also acting in love. So I tried to do a both and, showing sensitivity to each of you. Another example, when Carolyn Allison of blessed memory used to do coffee hours, once she learned that Dale Zelenka and some others were diabetic and could not eat the donuts and the cookies and the cakes that she would bring, she began bringing crackers and cheese, another thing safe for diabetics, to coffee hour. She was using her freedom to host coffee hour and bring all those things she was good at creating in her small kitchen with the love of those in a minority who were otherwise left out by those offerings. There were still sweet baked goods for the rest, but she was making a provision for those who couldn't take part. What might be some other examples of surrendering, surrendering our rights that another is built up, that the fellow believer for whom Christ lived and died is not somehow damaged, or where they're included? Love is free to surrender that which is not essential, but which may get in the way of another believer's relationship with God. We know that in some instances it may not really do that, but the other may not know that yet. If it, if it you know, and I realize there are a bunch of situations and some, it's, sometimes we get into some situational ethics, but love is shown. Because unlike selfishly flaunting our knowledge, that love does not threaten or destroy or damage. Except in certain cases. Paul wrote about the loving thing to do, and Jesus, in his own way, did the loving thing as well. Mark is, gave us such a dramatic passage. Just imagine being in worship, the teacher is teaching or the preacher is preaching, and someone comes in, this someone cries out challenging the speaker, have you come to destroy us? And the speaker rebukes the person and commands silence. And then the person has a seizure, 
right then and there. It's not quiet. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying with a loud voice came out of him. The words cried out is in the Greek a strong word indicating deep emotion. Then the unclean spirit is gone and the authority of the speaker is lauded. Love did threaten and cast out the unclean spirit. The person was freed from it, even as he might have been unconscious afterwards. Love and power are the same here. They acted together to get rid of this unclean spirit that was certainly getting in the way of people, and they're drawing closer to their knowledge and to God. Now, the passage never calls this spirit a demon. So, in a way, I regret uh, giving Peter the word exorcism to use. The Greek word here for unclean is akatharta, from, arka, from akathartos. Now, my Greek lexicon defines that as impure, unclean, lewd, foul. The annotation in my Oxford Annotated Study Bible still grants that spirit could be demon, but goes on to say about unclean, quote, the spirit or demon was called unclean because the effect of the condition was to separate people from the worship of God. In Lamar Williamson Jr.'s commentary, it's written, unclean, or evil, spirit, connotes ritual impurity, denotes an invisible spiritual being, neither human nor divine, alienated from and hostile to God. The unclean spirit arrives while Jesus teaches. Well, how can the word affect us and others, maybe by triggering the dynamics of fear and uncleanness or hostility to God? The word troubles them greatly. And also, I would offer, perhaps troubles those parts of us that want to remain independent, free from the word's authoritative influence, to compartmentalize our faith in such a way that in some areas we worship and obey God, while in other compartments of our lives we try to keep God out and maintain our control. And so when we hear the word, it can like, I don't want to hear this if you're calling for all of me. As Amy Grant sang, sometimes I sat and pondered if I'd be fine. If Jesus lived his own life, and I lived mine. When Jesus speaks of wanting all of us, sometimes parts of the old Adam and Eve might kick in and react negatively, under misunderstanding the freedom we get when we leave those fiefdoms or compartmentalizations behind to follow. Now, the, going back to the story, the spirits asked, Have you come to destroy us? The answer is yes. Jesus and the Word, which he is, are more powerful, more authoritative than the forces that are troubled by God's teachings. And so is the love behind Jesus' actions on behalf of the worshipers and that possessed person. More powerful. Now a larger application is if a group of vocal anti-LGBTQ plus protesters visited St. Peter's as they have other open and affirming congregations at worship. The deacons have a list of what to do and for us 
what not to do if and when that ever happens. If that spirit, led by something other than love, something closer to not knowledge in 2024, came and created a disturbance, which is what they come to do, there are protocols passed on to us through the Illinois Conference years ago. By the way, rule number one is do not engage with them. Do not speak to them, nor be rude, nor prevent them from entering. They're safe on the sidewalk. The lawn is St. Peter's private property. But that's another example of, you know, we have a way of, of, of dealing with those folks which is respectful, but it is not to let them get in the way between us and our worship of God. Lastly, I want to remember that Jesus cast out this unclean spirit that was proactively confronting Jesus. And sometimes that spirit is present in the status quo. Although, again, for some of those confronting him, they see themselves as his agents. For example, the proponents of Christian nationalism are a danger to both our country and our faith. That has little to do with Jesus or the New Testament ethic of, 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 uh, of Matthew 25, for one example. Christian nationalism is not about bringing wholeness and healing to people except their own kind. And we see it embraced by people in power and people out of power hoping to regain it or get it. Ron Kernigan, in my lastly, wrote of, of Mark, Contemporary preachers might do well to reflect on Mark's portrayal of Jesus. Sermons devoid of any call for change fall short of the model of Jesus. The kingdom of God is not a prop for the status quo. It is the power of God at work in history to bring wholeness and healing to people and to the structures of power and culture in which they live. Such preaching is also the loving thing to do. And that's good news. Amen. Well, I hope you found that message as interesting to listen to as I found it challenging to compose. Spent a good couple of days pretty much devoted just to writing this, this sermon. And uh, it's too bad I can't uh, know what your reactions are, though I believe that in SoundCloud, at least, there is a space for reactions. I don't know if it's just with emojis or if anyone can use any text. But, as I've said in the intro, you know, here's an opportunity for you to think about what are some ways that we can, you know, do the right thing of love, even if we have to set down some of our own uh, liberties or rights that we understand we have because we are just a little more educated in our, in our faith or more mature and we understand things uh, perhaps a bit differently than those who are newer, not that the newer believers are always wrong. I realize I could have qualified that, but that would have made the sermon maybe a little messier. Um, I learned a long time ago from my home church minister about be wary of qualifying what you say too much. He said, and it's like he was talking to me, even though he hadn't heard me preach, never did. Well, I don't think so anyway. He said, 
those he said when you read something by or listen to something by someone who's qualifying so men, so much of what they're saying, you know maybe this some of that um, could be. Then you really learn more about that person than you do about what they're saying, and I never forgot that. So I try not to qualify too much. I also don't like to preach with a with um, a sense that this is this is it's either or either believe this or don't. And so in in humbleness, I don't want to say this is the only way to look at things. But if you qualify everything and say, well, here's this way and here's that way. And actually, that was one of his own styles of preaching. Uh, That there is not just one Christian way of an approach, but there are several and we're all trying to, we're all, there is one, there is one, but we're all trying to find it. Um, maybe that was what his approach was. I'm sorry, I'm sorry for going on a, a bit longer than usual for this, uh, this outgoing segment. I do hope you enjoyed the message. Next week we're going to be looking at uh, the last part of Isaiah 40, which a lot of us love. It ends with the great verses of those who uh, you know, can't walk will find themselves able to, ro- to run and... Uh, those who wait upon the Lord, you know, shall renew their strength, etc. And then the gospel reading is Jesus doing a lot of healing. And that's, you know, that's always beautiful to, to read, to hear, and be reminded of this core part of his ministry, making a difference in people's lives and bringing the good news that the kingdom of God has come. So I'm going to free you from listening to the, any more of this podcast right now. I think I've kind of meandered a little I hope you don't mind, and we are going to say goodbye for now. Until next week, February 4th, until then, may God bless you, and may God bless your week. Amen. Like what you've heard? Hit subscribe to follow and get updates on our newest additions to The Red-Headed Preacher. We'd love it if you'd give us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us online under most social media platforms by typing St. Peter UCC Skokie in your browser. Donations are much needed and very welcomed. You can donate to us by going to paypal.me backslash St. Peter UCC Skokie. This information and more can also be found in the show notes wherever you listen to our podcast. Thank you so much.